0: Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And, uh, Victor, I want to orient our conversation today around a recent piece that you wrote for defining ideas. It's called the Civic Cost of illegal immigration and what's interesting about this piece is that you talk about how corrosive illegal immigration can be to the concept of citizenship and, and maybe we should start here with just a closer examination of that concept because i think to modern american ears it has a primarily sort of legal connotation when we say citizenship but what about what about the normative d- dimension how does citizenship contrast with simple
1: residency well i think it's It's central to the argument um, of illegal immigration that you confuse residency with citizenship. Citizenship is sort of a migratory experience. Uh, Residency is a migratory experience. All of us have lived for a while, probably in a different country, but we have no particular allegiance to it other than our, our friends we meet and stuff. But citizenship means that you buy into a bundle of responsibilities in exchange for the rights that you give. So if you're an American you get a unique protection under the bill of rights you you enjoy a dynamic economy and then in exchange for that you you speak english you protect your country both verbally and necessarily physically and you and you understand there's a physical space that's different that you understand that canada is a different place than the united states and that arizona and san diego are very different than mexico and You understand that because not to understand it would mean that the Constitution would be watered down or it would be attenuated or it would be some global meaningless document. that You can only manage a particular group of people in a particular space uh, under a particular protocol. You
0: talk in this piece about how illegal immigration – Undermines the sanctity of the law, but you're not just talking about the act of law breaking that occurs when someone comes into the country illegally. There are all these other effects that take place downstream. Describe for us how that
1: becomes so corrosive. Well, first of all, it sows confusion because when we equate the resident from Mexico with a citizen, then we think, well, they're subject to the same rights as americans are by virtue of their residing here illegally okay some people will buy into that but we've seen how that's a non-ending expansive idea when uh, under the latest immigration order and the court blocked it they basically said that people who are abroad in the middle east are subject to the same rights as u.s citizens as if the constitution should govern the entire world when they have no way of enforcing that It would be like saying you know Somebody who comes from mexico has uh, down in Mexico who wants to come. we can't discriminate against him because he's illegal or he doesn't like america and by the way, he also has the right to carry a gun in Mexico because that's in the second amendment so there's a confusion if you don't have a border you don't people are confused and about where American law begins and ends and then second, when you see somebody uh, that you don't know you and you expect them to, as residents, be citizens. And we all admit that there's a 10%, 15%, 3% of people in any country at any given time are just visiting. But when you have a large number of people, maybe 50 million, who are green card holders or illegal aliens or, or immigrants that are not U.S. citizens, or you have one in four people in California that was not born in the United States and various processes, of, then you it becomes a critical mass. So you meet people, you see people, you interact with people who have no idea what the Civil War was. If you ask them what the Fifth Amendment is and you explain it to them, it doesn't make much difference to them. They wave a flag of their home country even though they would never go back there if they had to, if they were forced to. So it creates a confusion about what it is to be American. Is it just a place where people kind of hang out and get an iPhone and eat? And it's cleaner than where you were at home or is it a unique place that puts responsibilities upon you to learn the language, become legal, and then protect the country that you've chosen to to live in.
0: Now, you talk in this piece about Democrats who may want more waves of immigration to bolster their numbers at the polls. You talk about these special interest groups that are based around ethnic identity and they rely on more of this immigration to sort of replenish their constituencies. And there are, to be sure, all these self-interested parties at work here. But then there are also people who have more principled arguments but ones that run counter to yours. And I wonder if we think about the sort of uh, libertarian or market-oriented people on the right, people who are often in agreement with you, Victor, on a lot of other issues. uh, Their argument for relatively open immigration, in some cases explicitly open borders, is basically the same as their argument for – Open trade you know, why, why should the government have the power to intervene in people's lives on such a fundamental right as where they have to live, or why should we be valuing the interests of the state over the interests of these individuals? Yeah. Um, how do you respond to arguments like that?
1: Well, I say to them, if 11 million to 15 million illegal immigrants are no problem, why not have hundred? Because if you look at the Pew polls of people in Mexico who would like to come to the United States, 56% of the population wants to come to the United States. And they would say, well, let the market adjudicate. Well, maybe it will, because life is better here. They have the mechanisms and means to get here very quickly. Why not just allow them all to come? If if the host nation has no control over its own borders and its own self-interest, and we're sort of in a global market, the second thing is to be quite reductionist. I've met a lot of those. In fact, I've debated a lot of libertarians in particular venues. I've always come away with the impression that it's always an abstract argument. In other words, they don't live somewhere where there's a large number of foreign nationals who are in the local schools that don't speak English. And so all the advanced placement classes disappear Uh, The teachers have to have teacher's age to translate. When they go to the store, they have to have translators. When you go to the doctor's office, you have to have translators. There's a large number of people who don't have driver's license, um, car registration. There's a large number of people where identity theft is a real problem. They have different names. Um, There's different cultures. So if somebody believes in Mexico that cockfighting and dogfighting is okay... Then what would stop them to do it when they arrive in the United States? And they do it, and then so there's all these problems that when you go away from the melting pot and you have no cultural identity and you don't have the and you have a salad bowl idea of live and let live, and that's what libertarian is. If they want to learn English, fine. If they don't, fine. If they want to come across, fine. This global efficient market will weed out, but they're never in that pathway. So. I put three of my children in the public schools, and I live in an area where it's about 90% uh, Hispanic and maybe 50% of that population is here illegally. And I shop, live, get my hair cut by people who are here illegally, many of whom are my friends, but I want to tell you that it's not an abstract experience. So when I walk across my almond orchard, I expect once a week to find a bull... A bulldog or a pit bull with a rope around its neck that's been dumped from a, or a cockfight where I find a dead cock that's thrown out the window. Or I, I find people who, their whole family are bathing and doing all their wash in an irrigation canal with, you know, toxic substances and bleach in the irrigation water that goes out to the crops. Or I'll see people defecating. Um, in an almond orchard as they walk through to find some place. So it's not, a, it, it, it's, there are practical problems by not assimilating people and allowing no, without immigration control.
0: On this same point about how the abstraction compares to the reality, there's also an interesting observation in the piece that you wrote about this, which is you say in your community, on the behalf of law enforcement and the regulatory side of government, that there, there's a real hesitation to treat the immigrant population the same way that they treat the native-born population in terms of enforcement.
1: Yeah, and I think the attitude is one-fourth of California lives before the, below the poverty line. Forty percent of California's population are Hispanic. This is a powerful democratic constituency. And so if you're a law enforcement officer or you're a zoning officer and you come out to my street and you say, should I go to place A where there's five illegal trailers, six porter potties, 20 wrecked cars, 10 pit bulls, and 40 people living in a single home uh, residence? Or should I go down the road where there's a middle class guy who's been here for 40 years, Japanese American? His leech line was probably a new leach line, it's probably two feet too close to the well. I can get him with a $10,000 fine or and he'll comply and nod and be very very safe, or they go into this other place where even if I'm able to cite them and speak the language, there's no way that they have the money or the willingness to pay that fine. And more importantly, it's loaded with political landmines that I might be racist or a nativist or xenophobic. So the result is that it's sort of like the Ferguson effect that people double down on law-abiding Californians or citizens of the United States to make up for the inability to control a large population that's politically powerful but either won't or can't follow all the rules. So in California, we're broke. We're having a, a big gasoline tax slated. But we also had a multi-billion dollar amnesty for traffic fines. So we, we thought, well, we're really going to make a lot of money by making a speeding ticket $400. Well, then they found out that A fourth of them weren't being paid. So then what do you do? Because you do impound your cars like you would anybody else? No. Then you give certain people amnesty, but that thing costs a lot of money. And it's not the revenue source you saw. And so the joke is in California that if you're not poor and not minority and you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, it's going to cost you. And you're not going to get amnesty at the DMV, but other people will. And it creates this kind of cynicism that the law is not being applied equitably.
0: Amongst the people who think that we have to be careful about how we do immigration, uh, one of the watchwords you've used in this conversation a couple times, it's always assimilation. And it it can be dropped so reflexively sometimes in these conversations that I'm not sure that a lay observer can always unpack it. So when we're talking about assimilation, is it just sort of a discrete series of traits like the language acquisition or is it something – a little bit more abstract than that. How do you think about it?
1: Oh, I, I want to assimilate. Then you learn, divide your ethnic identity to the extent that it extends beyond two generations between the private and the public. So keep your own language if you want at home. Encourage ethnic pride, etc. But when you're out in the public sphere, that's incidental to your Americanism. It's not essential. So you're not hyphenated. You don't emphasize an ethnic a component just so you can separate yourself from americanism and then you know plug into the victimization or the identity politics careerist industry and that's what it's become unfortunately at least for some groups but um if you don't see yourself as a person and that that's your essential nature is your character your values as who you are but rather what color your skin is or what language you speak or what ethnic background you you aspire to accentuate, then um, you've got a real problem. And the problem we have in California, indeed in the United States, is a lot, we have a lot of victims, but we're running out of oppressors. And that, by that I mean every hyphenated group has a claim against the majority, but the majority isn't there anymore. It's a multiracial society. And a lot of people were born, let's say... Twenty years ago, in the age, the heyday of affirmative action, and you can't tell a 25-year-old to you know step aside for a affirmative action or a quota or whatever because some person that was born before you was racist or sexist or homophobic, and therefore you must pay. They don't understand that, and that's why we're getting this these tensions that are occurring. And when you add into the matrix that the people who are overseeing this identity politics industry are quite affluent of all different races and backgrounds and the people who are suffering from it are often quite poor. You've got an explosive mix, especially in the the so-called white community where very affluent people virtue signal about white privilege, but the people who have no white privilege are on the receiving end of their idea of reparations or, or, you know, preferences, etc. So... You take a little kid that's 20 years old, very wealthy from Manhattan, and you put him at Columbia, and it's easy for him to say, "Oh, I, I suffer from white privilege," but he doesn't ever pay for that. He's on the cursus of norm, you know, of a good life. And he tells somebody in southern Ohio that he's a racist, and he has to pay. He does pay for that because he has no white privilege or any privilege. And that's also ex- that logic extends to you know anybody of any color. So Van Jones gets on TV and. Pl- acts like he's a multimillionaire guy making a great life he gives lectures about how he's to somebody who you know maybe greek american or armenian american or white american or whatever and i think the whole thing is a mess now and what started out as an understandably idealistic liberal project to make up for the sins of a 9010 white black binary country in 1965 now is a I don't know what it is, it's a 5%, to 8%, 12%, 13%, 50% integrated, um, multiracial, and it's not working, and the result of it can be comic, whether it's Elizabeth Warren saying she's Native American, or Ward Churchill, or Rachel Dozel saying she's black, or Sean King, or it can be tragic, where uh, you have somebody applying to Stanford University, and he, he just writes, uh, Black Lives, I Love Black Lives Matter, or Black Lives Matter. He writes it a hundred times, and he gets in, even though there might have been somebody from Shanghai who had much higher scores who wouldn't have never done that and took this question seriously, but he didn't hit the right ethnic buttons. I think time has come and gone for the whole identity project.
0: So with that in mind, the last thing that I'll ask you is to consider this in in prospect specifically the question of how reversible the damage that's already been done is what i what i mean by that is let's assume that we ma- we wave a magic wand and Victor Davis Hanson's preferred immigration policy is implemented today that still doesn't change the past few decades of illegal immigration it doesn't change that lack of respect for the rule of law that you identified as coming with it and it doesn't change these sort of centripetal forces that have led people to identify as being part of a siloed off ethnic group rather than assimilating to this broader notion of being an American how likely is it that you can get those forces some of which are really more cultural than political to abate
1: I think if you close the borders or you return immigration to a measured and legal enterprise maybe hundred thousand a year then all of these ethnic groups would very rapidly follow the trajectory as I said before to you um, on this broadcast, of Italian-Americans. So I say Giuliani, I say Cuomo. You have no idea that Italian ethnic identity had anything to do with their political outlook. And I think that would happen very quickly because while we're talking about roles and abstractions, at the ground level, people are intermarrying and integrating and assimilating. But the, the rewards are to play this game of Instead of my name being, you know, John Wilson, it's Jorge Ramirez Wilson. Or, you know, it'd be like me saying, I'm going to start spelling my name H-A-N-S-S-O-N and say my middle name is Leif, Victor Leif Hansen. And then I can get a Swedish identity kick out of it. So everybody's doing that, but it's a very unnatural process because when they get away from the workplace or the university or, or the career considerations, they do treat each other just like people. They intermarry. They're, they don't really judge people by how they look. It's the elite project that's doing it. And if I one was cynical, and I, I am pretty cynical, it's largely a, democrat, uh, a democratic project that's mostly in the American Southwest, sometimes in the inner city, to promote a message that I don't think Fifty-one percent of the American people support anymore. I think they supported eight-hour work week forty-hour uh, work week, eight-hour work day, disability, civil rights, but not the equality of result agenda. And the result is that they want to change demographically what they can't ideologically. The ramifications of, of their own ideologies because they have the money and influence to ins, insulate themselves and their children from the chaos that they're causing.
0: All right. That's all the time that we have for this episode of The Classicist. Until the next one, you can stop by hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.